Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are returning to the story of the Wilmington Coup of 1898. And part one of this episode, which uh, aired on Monday, had a lot of the social and political framework for this. And while the basic chronology of the the 1898 election in Wilmington and what happened afterwards, like, that'll make sense without part one. There's a lot of context in part one, and we're also going to be referring back to things that we talked about in part one. So much better to listen to that one if you have not already. In 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina, was the state's largest city with a population of about 20,000. It was also majority Black, with a sizable Black working class and a significant Black middle class, with numerous Black-owned businesses as well. And more than 90% of the city's restaurants were owned and run by Black residents, along with virtually all of the barbershops. The city also had an all-Black Board of Health, two Black fire departments, and multiple Black police officers. And although they weren't nearly as well-funded as the schools for white students, there were still some disparities there, its schools for Black students were really well-respected within the community. Thanks to Wilmington's busy port, jobs were plentiful, and all this together made Wilmington an attractive place for Black residents to live. It became a really popular destination for people immigrating from elsewhere in the state, as well as from South Carolina. Numerous accounts describe race relations in Wilmington in the years leading up to the riot that we're talking about as, quote, pretty good, as long as white Democrats stayed in charge of the local government. It would be more accurate to say that there wasn't much racist violence in Wilmington as long as Democrats stayed in charge. As we discussed in part one, Democrats in the state capital of Raleigh actively kept Republicans and black citizens out of office in Wilmington. So race relations may have been good uh, by the definition of not violent, but Wilmington didn't have home rule. The party in charge actively opposed the civil rights of the majority of its citizens, and those citizens had no way to remove that party from office. Yeah, the whole concept of race relations is kind of fraught. Because a lot of people use it to mean, like, are are minorities keeping quiet? Like, right? How much? How much? Uh, how much of a fuss is being raised? Like, and that while there wasn't a a bunch of fuss, there also was not self government by Wilmington's city in terms of its city government. The, all of this with the so-called good race relation, relations shifted after the March 25th, 1897 municipal election that we talked about in our previous episode, which had been pretty contentious and then led to three competing boards of aldermen all claiming to be the real one. And then after that, the race relations were no longer good. In fact, white Democrats were planning a conspiracy to overthrow the government that was elected on March 25th. While this campaign was focused on removing Wilmington's duly elected government and replacing it, it also had a secondary goal, which is to make an example of Wilmington in order to keep the rest of North Carolina's Black population in line. It is not clear exactly when the plan to do this was hatched. Later on, Thomas W. Clawson, who was editor of the Wilmington Messenger and was involved with the coup, said that white citizens of Wilmington had started formulating a plan six to 12 months ahead of the 1898 election. 
A group of nine white citizens were the ringleaders and became known as the Secret Nine. They were J. Allen Taylor, Hardy Fennell, W.A. Johnson, L.B. Sasser, William Gilchrist, Pierre B. Manning, Edward S. Lathrop, Walter Parsley, Hugh McRae. Also involved in the conspiracy were the Democratic Party Campaign Committee of New Hanover County, the Wilmington Chamber of Commerce, and another informal group known as the Group of Six. That's a lot of people involved. One of the most visible players in the conspiracy was Alfred Moore Waddell, who we quoted at the end of Part 1. Waddell had been a Confederate officer during the Civil War, and he had served in Congress from 1871 to 1879. After being defeated in the 1878 election, he had remained active in the Democratic Party, and he spent some time out of the state campaigning on behalf of Democratic candidates. He returned to Wilmington in 1883, ostensibly to practice law, but by 1898, he was unemployed. So during this time, he really devoted his energies to the party. He became a fiery and compelling speaker who had a knack for stoking racist fears among whites. The Wilmington coup of 1898 was part of the coordinated statewide white supremacy campaign that we talked about in part one. Democrats used that campaign to set the stage for what they were planning in Wilmington, aggravating white citizens' racial animosity as much as possible. In Wilmington specifically, as part of this campaign, members of the state's Democratic leadership visited the city and they started establishing white supremacy clubs, encouraging all white men to publicly announce their membership in these clubs. The clubs operated under the banner of the White Government Union, The white government union also organized a racist labor movement in the city. This labor movement's stated purpose was to replace black labor within the city with white labor. And this project was endorsed by Wilmington's Chamber of Commerce. Another aspect of the white supremacy campaign was essentially a show of force. The Red Shirts were the Democratic Party's intimidation and terrorism wing. They marched in parades all across the state, often leading groups of attractive white women to symbolically show that their role was to protect white feminine virtue. They also served as an honor guard for political leaders when they held rallies and gave speeches. But it wasn't just marching and guarding. The red shirts also terrorized black citizens, fired weapons into people's homes, and forcibly broke up meetings and rallies of Republican and fusionist politicians. They threatened Black voters away from polls, and they threatened fusion political leaders to try to intimidate them out of office. At one point, they even robbed the train of Republican Governor Daniel L. Russell. The Red Shirts were active in other states as well, and they had a major presence in Wilmington. And of course, any time a Black person reacted angrily or violently to being harassed, threatened, or otherwise abused by the Red Shirts or anyone else in Wilmington, White supremacists used that as evidence that Negro rule of the city needed to be put down. Meanwhile, in most quarters of the white community, the red shirts were praised for their ongoing violent harassment of black people and their white allies. I want to clarify that Negro rule here, like they made it sound like black people had just taken over the government. Totally. Black people were still a significant minority in the government. Like, the the government of Wilmington did not reflect the racial demographics of the city itself, which was majority black. Like, the the city government was still majority white, but they had this whole scare lore uh, campaign of, like, Negro rule and how awful it was. 
The ultimate focus for this campaign in Wilmington was Election Day of 1898. So there were only a few races that were being voted on that day. They were all statewide and national elections. Wilmington's municipal elections, like we said last time, they were to be held every two years. That wasn't for another year. But Democrats were not willing to wait until the 1899 municipal election to retake control of the city. So this election, although it was not for municipal offices, was the opportunity they took to do that. By Election Day of 1898, pretty much all of Wilmington's white citizens knew what was coming. The Democratic Party's white supremacy campaign was extremely public. It had been going on for months. And although it wasn't nearly so overt, word of the coup had been spreading among white citizenry as well. Black and white residents alike expected some kind of violence. Hoping that sober men would have cooler heads, the board of aldermen ordered the city's saloons to close around Election Day. Rumors also started to spread that Wilmington's Black population was planning some kind of a violent resistance on Election Day. The Democratic Campaign Committee hired a Black detective to investigate these rumors. He concluded that there was nothing to them, but two Pinkerton agents said that they had found servants who were planning to burn down their employers' houses if the Democrats won. Rumors that the Black community might turn to arson may have stemmed from the fact that they didn't really have access to firearms to use for their own defense. Black residents in Wilmington who did try to buy a gun ahead of Election Day had little success. The only people in town who sold guns were white, and since they already knew what was happening, they refused to sell guns to Black people. So the only weapons in the hands of Wilmington's Black residents were a few old muskets and pistols, mostly belonging to men who had served in the Civil War after the Union started accepting Black soldiers back in 1863. Conversely... White Democrats were definitely armed. They were definitely planning for violence. So they were raising a lot of fears that the Black community was doing something that they definitely were doing. Aside from people's personal firearms and other weapons, the white citizenry had access to the Wilmington Light Infantry Armory. City business leaders had also spent $1,200 on a Gatling gun. Armed patrols were organized for every block of the city on Election Day, with the red shirts and others being stationed outside of polling places to warn Black voters away. The red shirts also encouraged, in quotation marks, white voters who were ambivalent to get out and vote. They'd basically come to your house and be like, dude, you're voting now. I have a gun if you don't really want to do it. White Democrats also made real and explicit calls for violence. The night before the election, Alfred Moore Waddell spoke at a rally and proclaimed, quote, you are Anglo-Saxons, you are armed and prepared, and you will do your duty. Be ready at a moment's notice. Go to the polls tomorrow, and if you find the Negro out voting, tell him to leave the polls, and if he refuses, kill him, shoot him down in his tracks. We shall win tomorrow if we have to do it with guns. Within the Black community, advice on what to do in the face of all this was really mixed. Some leaders and clergy advised people to stay home for the sake of keeping the peace, while others insisted that they take a stand by exercising their right to vote. Women in North Carolina could not vote, and a coalition of Black women published a piece in the Wilmington Daily Record urging Black men to get out to the polls and vote. So we're going to talk about Election Day after we first pause, have a breather, and a little sponsor break. (music) 
election day was November 8th, 1898, and the day itself came with plenty of rumors and fear, but not a lot of actual violence. In the final count, Democrats gained more than 11,000 votes over the previous election. Some of this gain came from low turnout among Black voters due to intimidation and threats, including employers who threatened to fire any Black person who voted. But some of it was due to fraud. For example, the First Ward's 5th Precinct had 343 total registered voters, 313 of whom were Black. But 607 votes were counted, 456 for Democrats. This was in a precinct that, according to Registrar Abram Fulton, there were no Black Democrats. The count in this precinct was also interrupted when a crowd of men, described as strangers, showed up and put out all the lights. Yeah, once, uh, once the people who had been counting votes got back inside, one of whom went home because he was terrified, uh, like, obviously the votes had been tampered with, so, like, this, there were way more votes cast than people in the precinct, and specifically way more votes for Democrats than there were uh, Black registered voters who were overwhelmingly Republican. So that's the kind of stuff that was going on. On November 9th, the Wilmington Messenger published the election returns that morning, along with a notice that ran under the heading, Attention White Men. This notice summoned white men to the Wilmington courthouse at 11 o'clock that morning. A large group gathered there as instructed, and Alfred Waddell read a document known as the White Declaration of Independence. Sometimes you will see it as the white men's or the white man's Declaration of Independence, This document had been drafted by the Secret Nine as a component of their coup. This white declaration of independence began, quote, believing that the Constitution of the United States contemplated a government to be carried on by an enlightened people, believing that its framers did not anticipate the enfranchisement of an ignorant population of African origin, and believing that those men of the state of North Carolina who joined in forming the Union did not contemplate for their descendants subjection to an inferior race. We, the undersigned citizens of the city of Wilmington and county of New Hanover, do hereby declare that we will no longer be ruled and we will never again be ruled by men of African origin. This document went on to outline a series of points, boiling down to the idea that white citizens should not and would not be subject to a black government. This last point specifically condemned Alex Manley's editorial that had run in the Wilmington Daily Record that was printed earlier that year. We talked about that a lot in part one. It said that the paper itself should cease operations and that Manley should be banished and that the press should be packed up and shipped away. Waddell and the rest of the men then established a committee known as the Committee of 25 to make sure these points were carried out. Their first step was to summon 32 of Wilmington's most prominent black citizens, known as the Committee of Colored Citizens, or CCC. They instructed the CCC to appear at the courthouse at 6 p.m. that night. When the CCC arrived that evening, Waddell read them the White Declaration of Independence and told them that they had until 7.30 the following morning to go to Alex Manley, shut down his newspaper, and expel him from the city. The CCC retired to a nearby barber shop that one of them owned to figure out what to do. They ultimately wrote up a reply saying that they did not condone Manley's editorial, calling it obnoxious. This wasn't a new sentiment within the Black community. After that editorial was published, 
multiple Black leaders and clergy had told Manley that he should retract it, and they had criticized it as deliberately inflammatory. The CCC response went on to say that it wasn't within their authority to do what was being asked of them, but that in the interest of the peace, they would try. Armand Scott was tasked with hand-delivering the CCC's response back to Waddell. But as he was on his way to make his hand delivery, he ran into a large group of armed white men who were blocking his path. So he took it to the post office to be delivered instead. Also, there's some some discrepancy about what this letter actually said. Scott stated later on that the letter that was eventually reprinted in the papers, which is what we just summarized, was not what he was delivering. By the time the CCC met, Alex Manley had already left town due to the threats on his life. So Scott said that this letter had made it clear that Manley was already gone and that the record hadn't been published for two weeks. Other members of the CCC crossed paths with George Roundtree that evening, who was another member of the Committee of 25. They let him know that Manley was gone and that the press was shut down. But Roundtree did not go to the Committee of 25 meeting the next morning, and neither did anyone else who had heard that Manley had already left town. So, when Alfred Waddell had not gotten a response from the CCC by 7.30 the next morning, he assumed that they just weren't answering his demands. He went to the Wilmington Light Infantry Armory, where he found a mob of about 500 white men already gathered there, By 8.15, they were getting restless, and when he told them that he had not gotten a response from the Committee of Colored Citizens, they started discussing who should lead a march to the offices of the Wilmington Daily News. The Wilmington Light Infantry was on hand that day, but officers couldn't lead a civilian mob to a business in order to burn it down. They could only get involved through direct order from the governor or if the situation became violent. Eventually, Waddell offered to take the lead. By then, the mob had swelled to between 1,000 and 1,500 men. They marched to Love and Charity Hall, and they pounded on the door. But since Manley had already left, they didn't get an answer. So the mob broke down the door. They destroyed as much of the office as they could. They shattered the office's kerosene lamps, and then they set it on fire. Although some people did try to extinguish blowing cinders that spread from Love and Charity Hall to neighboring buildings, the fire chief kept the fire department from fighting the fire until it was clear that the building was damaged beyond all repair. Once an all-black fire crew was finally allowed to approach the fire, they had to fight it while surrounded by armed, angry white men who harassed and threatened them the entire time. Meanwhile. Colonel Walker Taylor of the Wilmington Light Infantry sent a telegram to the governor, which read, quote, situation here serious, I hold military, awaiting your prompt orders. After the mob that had burned down Love and Charity Hall returned to the armory, Alfred Waddell claimed he dismissed them to go back to their homes. They had done what they set out to do. However, he made that claim as part of an article in which he described the events that followed as having been carried out with the utmost restraint. And this was, of course, far from the truth. So after the after this mob went back to the infantry armory, a small group of armed black men started to gather not far away Rumors started to spread that they were planning some kind of counterattack, so the white mob moved to intercept them. 
This led to a brief standoff, and at some point, it is really not clear by whom a shot was fired. More shots followed, and then things really came to a head when a white man named William Mayo was struck with a life-threatening injury. And this sparked a riot that spread through Wilmington, which we are going to talk about in more detail after we first have a sponsor break. So on November 10th, 1898, after William Mayo had been shot, a heavily armed white mob started moving through Wilmington, terrorizing and murdering the Black population. Word of what was happening spread through the city and then beyond via telegraph. Other cities, including those as far away as Atlanta and New Orleans, started offering the aid of their own troops to Wilmington. And to be clear, these troops were being offered to assist the white mob, not to protect the Black citizens. When the governor replied to Colonel Taylor's telegram, his instructions were to use Wilmington Light Infantry troops to preserve the peace. The city's riot alarm was sounded, which was a signal to the Red Shirts and other paramilitary groups to mobilize. All of these armed men moved in on the predominantly Black neighborhood of Brooklyn. In addition to the Gatling gun that we mentioned earlier, a second machine gun unit was deployed by Naval Reserves. The mob that progressed through the neighborhood of Brooklyn was made up of white civilians, the Wilmington Light Infantry, the Red Shirts, and others, and they made violent, terrifying progress. The machine gun units aimed into black churches, which had been rumored as secret hiding places for armories, which they were not. Black women were strip-searched on the street, supposedly under suspicion of having been carrying weapons. The civilian mob and military and paramilitary units fired indiscriminately into homes, and they killed black citizens who resisted. At one point, the red shirts started a manhunt for Daniel Wright, who was accused of having fired the shot that hit William Mayo. Wright took up a position in his attic and fired at the red shirts before being captured, temporarily tied to a light post, and then released and told to run while the white mob shot him repeatedly. They left him lying in the street, and someone took him to the hospital more than an hour later. He died the next day. The governor dispatched more troops to Wilmington. That did not stop the violence, though. These troops had a lot of the same idea as the Wilmington Light Infantry in terms of how to keep the peace. It's not by protecting the Black population. Word of the situation also made its way to Washington, D.C. However, President McKinley didn't dispatch federal troops because there wasn't an official request from the governor. Later, he would get multiple letters from Wilmington's Black residents asking for help, but he did not intervene, since the governor reported that the situation was under control. As this mob moved through Wilmington, many of its Black population fled. They took refuge in swamps and a cemetery outside of town. At first, most of the refugees were women and children, and men joined them later as they were able to escape from the city. Those who fled into the swamps mostly stayed there without food, shelter, or warm clothing through the nights of November 10th and 11th. Even though Wilmington is a coastal city, this was not a warm experience. It was cold and damp, and they had nothing to eat and nowhere to take cover. Meanwhile, Wilmington's white political and business leaders got to work on their coup d'etat. George Roundtree and W.H. Chadburn were both a big part of this, although many other men were involved as well. They encouraged the mayor, his staff, the non-Democrats on the board of aldermen, and the chief of police to resign. 
Fusionist government leaders and their supporters were forcibly run out of town, sometimes at gunpoint or under threat of death. The committee of 25 then went to City Hall to elect replacements for all the people they had just ousted. They voted on them to, like, maintain this this illusion that this was an elected body. And their replacements for the Board of Aldermen were an all-white group of Democrats who then elected, elected Alfred Moore Waddell as the mayor. The newly instituted city government then put together a list of prominent black citizens who should be run out of town, including the entirety of the CCC. A few people were allowed to stay if they, quote, knew their place, and some were placed under arrest purportedly for their own safety. The final death toll of this riot isn't clear. The coroner held 14 inquests, all of which were ruled as having died from gunshot wounds inflicted by parties unknown. Estimates are as high as 100 black citizens killed, with many more injured. A few white men were injured, one critically, none were killed. Aside from those who were killed or wounded, more than 2,000 black citizens left Wilmington in the wake of the riot and coup. Prominent white Republicans left as well, and soon the city had lost its black majority. The Republican Party lost its support in both Wilmington and elsewhere in North Carolina, with its white members being branded as race traitors. The riot and coup affected Wilmington's black community in a number of ways, in addition to the deaths, injuries, and trauma. For the most part, black property owners in Wilmington were able to keep their property after the riot and coup. But black business owners disproportionately lost their businesses. In 1897, before the riot, there had been 216 Black-owned businesses and 789 White-owned businesses in the Wilmington City Directory. In the 1900 Directory, there were only 162 Black-owned businesses, a decrease of 25%. Meanwhile, the number of White-owned businesses dropped by only 2%. Also, Wilmington's working-class Black residents who either chose to stay or didn't have the means to go were increasingly shuttled into lower status and lower-paying jobs. One of the refrains of the white supremacy campaign that had been going on throughout North Carolina had been returning jobs to white citizens. And these newly vacated jobs, as, as Black citizens were moved into less advantageous jobs, Newly vacated jobs were indeed filled by white workers, but employers had been paying black employees much less than they would typically pay a white person. The pay did not increase when the race of the workers changed. After the riot was over, the response among the black community within and outside of Wilmington was divided about how to live in light of what had just happened. In Wilmington, many church leaders took to the pulpit to advise compliance and appeasement for the sake of just keeping the peace. Outside the state, the incident provoked outrage among black civic and political leaders. A number of meetings and demonstrations protested what had happened and proposed ways to try to prevent a future recurrence. But these efforts were lampooned and criticized among white Democratic presses, in some cases turning into even more fuel for more racist propaganda. It was clear to the Black community that anything other than total deference and appeasement was just going to be met with more violence. So ultimately, efforts at resistance in the immediate aftermath of this riot fell apart. The riot received favorable coverage in the white press overwhelmingly. I mean, of course, there were 
there were detractors, but for the most part, this, this was viewed as like a necessary retaking of Wilmington. Robert Bunting, a federally appointed commissioner, reported in Washington that he had been forcibly removed from office and run out of the city. In response, the U.S. Attorney General told the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina to investigate. And while the U.S. Attorney said he would, he never did, hemming and hawing about it until the federal government just dropped the issue. The matter was closed in 1900 with no indictments or arrests. No one was ever prosecuted for their role in the riot or the coup. After the coup, Wilmington's new government rewrote the city charter again to legitimize their positions. Then they all ran for re-election in 1899 and won, with the Republican Party offering no opposing candidates. The Wilmington coup and the white supremacy campaign leading up to it affected politics throughout North Carolina. As the Democratic Party had hoped, after what happened in Wilmington, it wasn't necessary to do the same thing elsewhere in the state. Democrats regained control of the state's General Assembly. Afterward, North Carolina passed a suffrage amendment to the Constitution. This amendment required literacy tests and poll taxes, but it included a grandfather clause exempting anyone descended from someone who was eligible to vote in 1867. This meant that the new requirements applied almost exclusively to Black people who did not have the right to vote in 1867. This law actually remained in place until the Civil Rights Movement. Democrats in the General Assembly also rolled back the fusion government's most progressive election laws. And on March 6, 1899, the General Assembly ratified, quote, an act to restore good government to the counties of North Carolina, which once again gave legislators in Raleigh control of the local government of 13 cities. These cities were all either majority black or close to it. Together, all of this once again solidified Democrats' power in North Carolina, even beyond what it had been before the success of the Fusion Coalition. When Democrat Charles Aycock, who had actively participated in the white supremacy campaign, was elected governor in 1900, the party had control of both houses of the state legislature and the governorship. North Carolina essentially had a one-party government for decades afterwards. After it was all over, the 1898 riot was generally something that Black residents of North Carolina, especially in Wilmington, heard about from parents, grandparents, and peers. Two Black writers also published works of historical fiction about it, uh, really in those early years afterward. One was 1900's Hanover, or The Persecution of the Lowly, a story of the Wilmington Massacre by David Bryant Bolton, who was writing under the pseudonym Jack Thorne. The other was Charles Waddell, but a different Waddell, The other was Charles Waddell's 1901, The Marrow of Tradition. But the riot mostly disappeared from white collective memory for decades. It was not part of North Carolina history classes, and when it did come up, it was mostly described as a race riot, and in some cases, it was praised. That started to change in 1994 with the publication of Philip Gerard's novel, Cape Fear Rising. Yeah, I graduated from North Carolina public schools in 1993, This was not a thing I ever heard about in a North Carolina classroom, ever. (laughs) It's also not a thing that I heard about in college, although I did not have, like, North Carolina history classes in college. So, in 2000, not long after the centennial of this riot, the North Carolina General Assembly enacted legislation to create a commission to investigate it. 
has followed similar investigations into the 1921 Tulsa riot and the 1923 Rosewood massacre, both of which have been the subject of previous episodes. The North Carolina Commission used the investigations into these incidents as a model. So the commission's purpose was to both develop a historical record of the incident and to determine its impact on North Carolina's Black population. The investigation's findings were released in a more than 400-page report in 2006, and the findings are clear. That it was an armed overthrow of a duly elected municipal government, that it was an organized conspiracy and not a spur-of-the-moment act of violence, and that, quote, involved in the conspiracy were men prominent in the Democratic Party, former Confederate officers, former office holders, and newspaper editors locally and statewide rallied by Josephus Daniels of the Raleigh News and Observer. The investigation also noted the role of Alex Manley's editorial that we talked about in part one, which was responding to Rebecca Latimer Felton's speech. But they pointed out that this coup would have taken place even without that involvement. After all, the coup was being planned six to 12 months before Election Day, which was well before that editorial was ever published. The commission also made connections between the 1898 riot and coup and later incidents of violence in Wilmington in the 1970s. It framed this more recent violence as, quote, directly related to unresolved conflicts of 1898. The commission also made recommendations for empowerment, economic redevelopment, education, and commemoration. In 2006, the same year as the commission released its findings, the Raleigh News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer each apologized for their role in the violence in the coup. And as part of this, the two papers co-published a 12-page special report on the riot, which was distributed as a special section of both of them. The North Carolina Democratic Party apologized a year later. The General Assembly passed a resolution acknowledging the act in 2007 as well, which had been part of the commission's recommendations. However, it took some effort to get that acknowledgement through the General Assembly. A bill titled 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Acknowledgement was filed in March of 2007 and was ultimately blocked, at least according to news reports, because Republican legislators wanted it to include the fact that white Republican legislators had been working with black citizens and had opposed the riot. Yeah, a lot of the discussion in news media of this riot within the last, like, five years has basically been to try to t- to criticize the Democrats by current sitting Republican leaders, which, as we've talked about on the podcast before, like, it's, it's, it's great that the Democratic Party apologized for this. But when it comes to your voting decisions, you have to vote based on what the party's doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> Not on what the party was doing a uh, hundred years ago. Like, political parties have totally... We've talked about that before. Yeah, we've talked about the the way the platforms have shifted and and in some ways they traded places on their positions, um, which is important to remember. And I think sometimes that gets excluded purposely uh, to try to frame things in a more positive light. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was a, a, a lot of times that shift of platform gets kind of oversimplified as like a light switch that got turned. But like, Every political party in the country has been continually revising its its platforms since they've existed. Back to wrapping up this story. 
So after that whole thing, when it got derailed, because apparently people wanted to talk about how the Republicans helped, a Senate joint resolution acknowledging the 1898 events was introduced on July 31st of that year and then ultimately ratified on, on August 2nd. But this joint resolution is a lot milder in its language than the original bill was. It leaves out things from the original bill, like the words white supremacy, as well as the earlier bill's acknowledgement that it was, quote, a conspiracy of a white elite that used intimidation and force. Also removed from what eventually uh, was ratified was, quote, government at all levels failed to protect its citizens, which was replaced with the much less uh, firm, quote, government was unsuccessful in protecting its citizens during that time. In more recent updates, uh, the state's Highway Historical Marker Committee approved a plaque that will be installed in March of 2018, so in just a couple months. Uh, this plaque will be placed at Market Street between 4th Street and 5th Street, which is the site of the old armory building, and in a busy part of Wilmington's downtown. There have been slash are other markers and memorials, but that one is the most recent one and also the one that clearly frames it as having been a coup that involved burning down this newspaper. To circle back around to what the party is doing right now for just a second, we should also note that a lot of the background stuff that we talked about through these two episodes is still going on. So race obviously is still used as a political wedge in the country as a whole. In North Carolina, now it's the Republican Party that has turned to gerrymandering and racially discriminatory voting laws to influence election outcomes in North Carolina. The Republican Party controlled both houses of the state's General Assembly and the governorship from 2013 until the end of 2016. And during that time, they passed a voter ID law that the fourth U.S. Circuit Court struck down in 2016, saying its rules, quote, target African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Today, as in the day we are recording this podcast, a panel of federal judges ruled that the congressional district lines that the Republican-controlled state legislature drew in 2016 were gerrymandered to give them an unfair advantage, calling them, quote, motivated by invidious partisan intent. On top of that, there continues to be a theme of the state government in Raleigh overruling municipal government decisions. As one example, the now-notorious House Bill 2 that made national headlines in 2016 was passed in an emergency session that was convened specifically to prevent an anti-discrimination ordinance that protected transgender people's access to bathrooms, which was passed by the Charlotte City Council, from going into effect. This is such a running theme in North Carolina politics still that a sarcastic Raleigh knows best is a common refrain in municipal politics. Do you have a little bit of listener mail? Again, I'm crossing my fingers for lighter fare, but I, I, also, I also don't want to act like, oh, we shouldn't talk about dark things, but we've had a lot of that. It's hard to even read some of the quotes in this one, so I would love it if we have lighter email. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do have lighter email. It is actually from Twitter. This was a great enough thing that came in on Twitter that I was able to keep up with it because it can be, it can be tricky when people tweet things at us to then later on when we're back in the studio, like find the tweet again. Uh, and this is from Johan on Twitter and it is about our, uh, unearthed when we talked about um, 
the collection of artifacts that was just stolen from some scaffolding. And we had a whole conversation about whether maybe it was in, an inside job. Like, did somebody know that there were just these easily accessible artifacts that could be taken out of uh, the museum? And Johan says, as a Norwegian and a history student at the University of Bergen, I can sadly put your suspicions of inside information in the Bergen heist to rest. The two men arrested were known to police as petty criminals, and the police described the heist as a crime of opportunity. <laughs> uh, and then Johan very helpfully sent some sources on this, noting that they're in Norwegian, uh, and then said also of note, the museum's alarms went off twice that night. The first time the security company sent someone who decided without entering the building that it was probably the wind shaking the scaffolding, triggering the sensors. The second time they just disabled it remotely so uh yeah that's maybe not not the best thing to do i i understand this impulse i used to live in a home that had uh, a a burglar alarm that was it had had some false positive incidents so i understand the impulse to be like oh that's probably just probably just the cats knocked over the broom again but uh (laughs) no this that's maybe not the best way to treat with uh, to, to to handle a burglar alarm going off uh, at the museum. Anyway, thank you so much, Johan, for sending us this further information. I definitely would not have found that on my own because it was in Norwegian. So it's always good to hear from somebody there on the scene. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And then we are on social media at Missed in History. That is where you will find our Facebook, our Twitter, our Pinterest, our Instagram. You can come to our website, which is missedinhistory.com, where you will find show notes, uh, including in our, in our show notes for today's episode will be a link to the entire commission report. That's many hundreds of pages on this riot and coup. Uh, there's also a searchable archive of all our past episodes, so you can do all that and more at mistinhistory.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever else you might get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 